Well, good morning. It is a delight to be back with you at Westmount Bible Chapel. I'm filling big shoes this morning. As, as much as your pastor uh, says good things about me, I cannot say enough good things about him. He sharpens me. He makes me a better person and a better, a better follower of dis, uh, disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's all you can ask in a friend. And so it's certainly been a delight to be able to come to Ontario of all places and to, to serve in the church here. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And I'm just going to read three short verses this morning. John 19, verses 28 to 30. Listen to John as he writes, as the Holy Spirit superintends him. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we tackle our text this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would make us clean vessels to hear from you. Again, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher, that anything that is not true would not be heard, and only the truth will be heard. And I pray this morning as we look at our Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, that again, we would be marvel at him, that we would love him more, that we would go forth praising him more and living more, the more abundant life because we have seen him, we have been conformed to his image, to the glory of your grace, I pray in your name, amen. Well, this morning, as before we come to our saying, it is finished, we want to figure out how we got here. We just want to put a little context here. Now, if we would just flip the clock back, almost 21 hours is where we're going back. Sun is setting, the day is starting, and Jesus is going to celebrate the Lord's Supper or the last Passover with his disciples. He's already sent them into town to get, get the upper room ready. And so he will now celebrate the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper with his disciples. And after celebrating the Lord's Supper and after singing, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus wrestles, as it were, and this is probably close to midnight. He wrestles because of the death that he is about to face, because he will be separated from his father. He will be associated with sin. It will be credited to him. And so Jesus prays, Father, take this cup from me. Not because he was disobedient, but because of the horror of what was to take place. He sweat blood, drops of blood, as it were. And after praying, he is ready now for his betrayal. And Judas comes up with the chief priests and the Roman soldiers. He kisses Jesus' rabbi. And Jesus is taken into custody. And now through the night, Jesus will go through six different trials, three civil, 
three religious trials. He will go before Caiaphas, Cephas, the Sanhedrin. He will go through Herod. He will go through Pilate twice before he is, before he is finally condemned to death on the cross. And all through this time, he is mocked. He is beaten. He has a crown of thorns put on him. He is spat upon. He is scourged. He is so weak that he cannot carry his own cross and another man must carry it to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And so he is taken to the top of the hill and there he is stripped naked. His clothes are taken off of him and they begin to nail him to the cross. Nails through each wrist, nails through his ankles as they nail him to the cross. But as he is being nailed to the cross, you can hear Jesus saying the first things that he will say on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now the tense there says he didn't just say it once. He continually said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them over and over again for they know not what they do. Now, Jesus wasn't giving a universal pass and saying, forgive all of those who have crucified me. But he was praying for those that the Father had given to him. And part of the, of the fulfillment of that prayer was in Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 people turned to Jesus Christ when Peter preached. And part of those people were placed into the church. They had been there when Jesus Christ was crucified and Christ's prayer was answered. They were forgiven because they put their trust in Jesus Christ and had their sins forgiven. And so Jesus is put on the cross. He's lifted up and his cross is dropped into the ground. And now he begins that excruciating suffering on the cross where he has to push himself up for every breath where he starts to have a shortage of breath. Now, while he was on the cross, people, the people continue to ridicule him. They call out to him, save yourself. If you're say, who you say you are, save yourself. But that's not all. Jesus has been crucified between two criminals. Two criminals, he is just another criminal according to the law. And here is Jesus, and now those two criminals on each side of him start to mock him as well, and they say, save yourself, save us. Until that moment when the Holy Spirit breaks through in one of these thieves. And he stops, and he says, and he starts to rebuke the other thief, and he says, listen, we're guilty, we should be here, but this man is innocent, he has done nothing. And then he turns to our Lord Jesus Christ and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus spoke the second time from the cross and he said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And there's our marvelous Lord Jesus Christ, even on the cross, asking for forgiveness for those who are his, even here forgiving sins and giving salvation to those who would come. Our Lord Jesus Christ has to be God. Only God can forgive sin. And here he is, even in this moment, forgiving the repentant sinner. Well, Christ continues to suffer on the cross. And as he looks up, he sees his mother. 
and three women who have come with her. They are standing there. They are watching, agonizing as Christ is dying on the cross. And he sees John, the disciple he loves. And he turns to his mother and he says, Behold your son. And then he turns to John and says, Behold your mother. And Jesus, again, thinking not of himself, but even in this moment as he faces the cross and the, and the suffering that is to come, is thinking of his mother. And he graciously now gives the care of his mother, not to his brothers. He had brothers. But he gives them to John. John, the apostle John, why? Because John was a believer and he entrusts the spiritual and physical care of his mother to a believer. Jesus is setting up even here new relationships in the family of God. And then Jesus is on that cross suffering and hanging there for three hours from nine o'clock in the morning till noon. And that at noon, the darkness falls upon the earth, a supernatural darkness. It is pitch black. And for the next three hours, God pours his wrath out on his son. Darkness is not the absence of God. Darkness is not God hiding his face from Jesus. It is an indication of his wrath. And for some, some unimaginable way, God poured out his wrath on his son. He removed his fellowshipping presence from the son and put his wrath upon him. And for the first time in history, the Trinity was separated from fellowshipping together in some mysterious, unexplicable way. The son and the father are separated as he pours his wrath out on the son. And as the light begins to come up and as the Father's wrath is lifted, starting to lift, you hear this cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it seems in that instance between God's wrath upon his son and restoring the fellowship of the Father, Christ calls out, my God, my God, where are you? Where have you gone? And Jesus, still trusting, still trusting in the Father, desires that fellowship be restored back to him. Now back in the light, full light, Jesus says, one more time, I thirst. His fifth saying, I thirst. I am a human being, I still have needs, I thirst, I have been on the cross, I have lost blood, I have suffered, I need water. But again, he does that because it was prophesied that he would be fed this water and this wine. So Jesus even there fulfills scripture just that moment before we come to our saying this morning. And when we come to this sixth saying, this morning on the cross, we come to this statement where it says, a simple statement, three words in English, one word in the Greek, to tell, to, to tell us tie, to tell us tie. 
it is finished. It is finished. Now we're told from Matthew that he cried out what? In a loud voice. It is finished. This was not a cry of someone who was finished physically. This is not one who was giving up. But this was a victor's cry. He cried out, it is finished. And so this morning as we come and we look at this, we, we want to ask the question, what is finished? What did he do? What did he do to complete this? What did he finish? What exactly does he mean it is finished? Well, there's a couple of things that we can gather from this word this morning. First of all, it was also used as, a, as a, an accounting term. It was a term that when you paid up your debt, they simply stamped it to telestai. It is finished. Your debt is paid. So Christ has paid something. Christ has finished something. What is this? Another thing that we can just gather from this word is that it's called, it's in what we call the perfect tense. It simply means this. It was completed in the past with continuing results. Right? We can say that if I cut off my foot yesterday, right? If I cut off my foot, there would be continuing results today. There would be no foot there. Whatever he did, whatever he finished, he completed in the past, but there are continuing results that go into the future. And so we need to find out what is that? What did he do? What, what did he finish? And so this morning, I want us to see five things that were finished when he said it was finished. And this morning, I trust that we will marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished, and we will marvel at the price he paid, and we will be assured of the greatness of our Savior, and we will go forth knowing the security of our salvation and the power that we have to live pleasing to him. And this morning, I hope we get to be amazed by our Lord Jesus Christ and that he has provided for us abundant life and what he has finished on the cross. And so this morning, the first thing that I want to see that was finished is simply this, that when Christ said it was finished, he is saying every single prophecy that ever was made about him for his first coming was complete. Every single prophecy in scripture that was made about Jesus Christ was finished when he said it was finished. So what prophecies are those? Well, it starts early, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 3. It was declared about Jesus that he would be what? The seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. It says, and I say, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Who is that seed? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? And so from the very beginning, we see that Christ would be the seed who would crush Satan. And here he is. It is finished. He has done it on the cross. Galatians 4.4, 4, for the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, what? Born under the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled that prophecy. Christ continues all the way through scripture to fulfill the prophecies that were made about him. It was announced in Isaiah 7.14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. 
That's an amazing prophecy. First of all, how many virgin births do you know? They don't happen, do they? They just don't happen. And this was made hundreds of years before Christ was born. How, and yet, Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus is as follows. His Mary, mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, and she, found, she was found with child by what? The Holy Spirit. Again, another prophecy fulfilled in Christ. On and on it goes. It was revealed in, 20, in Genesis 22, 18, that he would be of the seed of Abraham. Again, this is revealed to us in Matthew in the genealogy of the Messiah that he is what? The seed of Abraham. He would be a descendant of David, 2 Samuel. Again, Matthew says he was a son of David. Prophecy said that he would be named before he was born. Did you know that? It says that he would be named before he was born. That was prophesied. It says in Isaiah 49:1, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. From the body of my mother, he named me. Amazing stuff. And what, is this, what does Luke record for us? The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you have conceived with your womb, and you will bear a son, and you, you will name him Jesus. Prophesied hundreds of years before, and it came true exactly as it had been predicted. Christ was fulfilling everything that was prophesied. It was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, Micah 5.2. He was born in Bethlehem. Prophecy referred that he would have a flight into Egypt and return out of Palestine. Hosea tells us that's, that that's exactly what happened. He fled so that he would not be killed. Again, the prophecies come true. Foretold of a person who would come and make way for the Messiah. Again, fulfilled in John the Baptist. It was said Messiah would appear opening the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. Again, Christ's ministry was full of that, both spiritually and physically. Prophesied that he would be poor and needy, and the New Testament records that he had no place to lay his head. It was intimated in Psalm 78 that he would speak in parables. He spoke in parables. I mean, everything about his life is predicted, and it came true in Christ. It was prophesied the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Zechariah 9.9, and then it came to pass. It was announced that he would be a person who would be despised and rejected. He was despised and rejected. It was said that he would hate, be hated without cause, and that is precisely the case. A prophecy painted the whole picture of his crucifixion vividly reproduced in, in his life. The betrayal of his friends, the shaking of his disciples, the appearing of false witnesses against him, the refusal to take part in his defense, his unjust condemnation, all of these things were prophesied in Scripture. And when Jesus said it was finished, everything that had been prophesied about him had already been accomplished, even down to the fact that he said, I thirst, and he was fed that wine on the sponge with a hyssop branch. And he did this anticipating his death. But everything that was necessary for him as he lived in a human body was accomplished. All prophecy was fulfilled. And he said, it is finished. Now, I've just given you a few, a few prophecies here. There's some debate because 
not everyone agrees with the same prophecies, but there's around 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. 300. And when Jesus said it is finished, every single one of those prophecies was fulfilled. Now remember, the Old Testament was written what? The last book of the Old Testament was written 400 years before Christ came. 400 years and yet he fulfilled every single promise even in that, in that book. No one here could, make a, a, could look forward and make a prediction and say, this is going to happen. I can see this happening. This is 400 years minimum to the last prediction that was made before Christ came and he fulfilled them all. Now, there's one thing I want us to draw from this. If everything about his first coming was fulfilled and he fulfilled every single prophecy that, he, that was made about him, guess what? He says he's coming again. He says he's coming again, which means every single prophecy that is left to be fulfilled about Jesus Christ and his second coming will absolutely 100% come true in the exact same way the first ones did. Did you get that? Now, here's the thing. If he fulfills all prophecy and he fulfills the prophecies to come, that means he is coming back. That means that assures your salvation. That assures you that every promise that he makes to you is good. If he keeps every one of those prophecies, that means he keeps his word. God wrote the scriptures. It is God's word. Everything that is written in scripture is for, that is for you is true. Because if he kept his word the first time, he's going to keep his, it the second time. And it means every promise that he has given you in scripture to live the Christian life is also true. When he says you can trust him, you can trust him. When he says... His ways are good. His ways are good. When he promises that he will never leave you or forsake you, he will never leave you or forsake you. You see how everything just spools out of that. If he keeps his word, the word of God to a T, if he speaks the word of God, then everything he says will come true. And so not only do we have hope for the future, but we have hope for today that our marvelous Lord, Jesus Christ on the cross, when he said, it is finished, I fulfilled all prophecy, which means I will fulfill it again when I come. You can take that to the bank. God keeps his word. Amen? Amen. Well, not only did Christ finish all prophecy, but he also finished suffering Remember, Christ, when he came to earth, was for the first time God in flesh. God had never had a human body. God had never experienced, as it were, human emotions, human pain in a human body. Now, God knows all things, but he had never experientially had a human body. And so when Christ came, he came as a human being. In other words, he experienced hunger, he was thirsty. He stubbed his toe, just like you and I do, probably with a better reaction. But he was human, right? He was human. He certainly felt the hostility of nation. 
He felt the rejection of, of his friends, of those who were closest to him. He suffered. He suffered knowing that he was going to the cross. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he would face not only the physical suffering, but the wrath of God. And he, he, he struggled in prayer to his father. He suffer, he'd suffered knowing the agony he was facing. Again, it was not the physical abuse that he was so afraid of, right? I, mean, I know in his humanity, he certainly would not look forward to that. But for Jesus Christ, the Holy Lamb of God, being whipped and beaten with a rod, putting that purple robe on him, having it dry on him and then ripped off, was nothing compared to what he would face when he would face the wrath of God and be separated from his father for three hours. And for three hours, he would suffer that wrath of God and he would suffer eternally for three hours for, for sin that he might save some. And so, as Christ suffered this, he came to the end, as he's coming to the end, he says it is finished. And Jesus will what? Now no longer suffer. All that suffering is done. He has suffered the wrath of God. He has suffered in humanity through his life. He has suffered at the hands of men as they have beaten him, as they have struck him, as they have spit upon him. But when Jesus says it is finished, he says, I have done all that is necessary. I have done, suffered everything I will suffer as I came as a man as I face the wrath of God, he said he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Christ's suffering comes to an end when he says it is finished. Now he's anticipating his death because in, in two breaths he's going to be dead. But he says, listen, all suffering for me is now done. I am finished. I have done everything that is required in a human body and it is done. But you know what? Because of his suffering, your suffering will end. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished here when he has finished, he has paid the price for sin and he has paid the price and the consequences of sin. And all suffering and all pain are a result of what? Sin. And so he says, he has provided a way to be restored to him. And because we go to be with him and because we will be in a place where, there is, where we are with him and there's no more sorrow, no more tears, he will wipe them away because of what he has done on the cross. This is good news. This is really good news. It is finished. Not only is it finished for him, but there is a forecast for us that our suffering will also be finished because he is with us. He will take us away from the presence of evil, the presence of Satan, the presence of sin because of what he has accomplished. So as he suffered on the cross, he said, it is finished. And if you are believing in him, it means it's a forecast that it will be finished for you as well. So Jesus says, it is finished. I have finished prophecy. I have finished suffering. And now he says, I have finished the mission of the, 
of the incarnation. Finish the mission of the incarnation. In other words, Jesus came and he came to do what? The will of the Father. God sent him here, he placed him here on earth and he said, I have a job for you to do, something that can only be accomplished in the flesh, something that must be done as a human being and you are to obey me. And Jesus said in John 5.36, but I have a greater witness than John for the works of which the Father has given me to finish, the same works I do. And so Jesus Christ came in the flesh with a mission. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to do the works that the Father told him. And when Jesus says it is finished, he says, listen, I have done all the Father has given me to do. I have finished the task. I have been obedient to what he would have me do. I got up when he wanted me to get up. I went to bed when he wanted me to go to bed. I confronted sin. I did miracles. I kept the law. I did everything in my life according to the will of the Father. Even as a child, he said, I must be a what? About my Father's business. There's nothing that I disobeyed. There's nothing that I went off on my own. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have what? Given to me. Christ anticipating his death. And even in death, in Christ's obedience in his flesh, he demonstrated to us absolute obedience. He finished everything that God had called him to do. It says, actually, in Scripture, it says that Jesus what learned obedience. He learned obedience to be in complete obedience to the will of Father. And doing that, he left us an example to follow. He left us an example to follow. Do you understand now that Jesus, as he walked on earth, walked in the Holy Spirit? Now, Jesus was unique in the fact that he was a perfect human being. He was, wasn't, didn't have a sinful nature. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus walked on earth, he walked here in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, his obedience was propelled by his humanity being submitted to the Holy Spirit. And so as when he obeyed, it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we are called to be like Christ, when we are called to be like him, this is exactly what we're called to be. We're called to be obedient to God. How are we to be obedient to God like Jesus Christ? To be submitted to the Holy Spirit and live in obedience to him. And when we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we too can be what? Obedient, we too can be pleasing to God. And now I can be, live an obedient life. I can now be pleasing to God because I now can do the same thing that Jesus Christ. He is my example. If he walked in the spirit and if he was obedient to the will of the Father, I too have no reason not to walk in victory in this life because Christ is my example. Submit to the Holy Spirit 
be obedient and be pleasing to God. And because he lived a perfect life in the flesh, and that perfect life is now the righteousness with which we, we stand, if we trust in him, we can now live in obedience because he has purchased our redemption for us. Now, the fourth thing I want us to see this morning is simply that he has finished the atonement and the requirements of the law. He finished the atonement and the requirement of the law. The law required from the Old Testament was, was simply this. It, for sin, the requirement was death and blood. In order for you to be good enough for a holy God, you needed perfection. And that's why there was the sacrifices in the Old Testament. You needed a perfect lamb, a perfect lamb to sacrifice whose blood must be shed to cover sin. It was sprinkled on the mercy seat and it covered that mercy seat and it covered over sin. And Jesus Christ came as that what? Perfect lamb of God. And he came to atone for sin. And when he came here on earth, it wasn't just good enough for him to die. He needed to live a perfect life. He needed to keep all the requirements of the law. And when he came, he kept all of the, the laws of the Old Testament. And he never once broke one single requirement of the law. That's a lot of law. And yet Jesus perfectly fulfilled that as when he came he kept every single command. And Jesus says, I, I came I, and I, I was able to what? Be that perfect lamb of God without sin, without spot. And I faced the wrath of God. I satisfied his justice. I satisfied his righteousness and his holiness. I am the one who's able to do that. I am the one who stood before the father and took his wrath. I was the propitiation. I was the payment. I was the satisfaction. I stood in the gap in your place. I made atonement for sin. I am the one who paid the price. And when Jesus said it is finished, I want you to notice something. He did not say, I am finished. He didn't say, I am finished. Nor did he say, I've done my part. Now it's up to you. Do you notice what I've done? No. He said, it is finished. In other words, Jesus says, the atonement I paid on the cross is paid. It is finished. There is nothing to add to the law. There is nothing that you can do to add to the atonement for which I have accomplished. It is finished. There is nothing, there is no tax to pay, there is no tip to be given, there is nothing left to pay. The only way we can receive salvation is through faith, by grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are trying to earn your way, and if you are trying to add to this atonement, you are not, you are not being faithful to what Jesus Christ said. He is very clear. He doesn't say, I am finished, he says, it is finished. What I have accomplished here is done once for all, for all eternity, with continuing results. There's nothing that you can add. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, let us rejoice that the payment of sin is done. He has paid for our sins, past, present, and future. And you can sit here secure knowing 
You are righteous before God. Not because you're so great, not because you're so obedient, not because you make so many right decisions, not because you, you do good, more good than bad, not because you do good works, but because you stand in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the righteousness which he has given to you. Don't undermine the sufficiency of what Christ has done. There's a part of people who they want to add to to what Christ has done. They want to add good works. They want to add a a bunch of, of, of activities that they must do. But I want to tell you this. Anything that you do, anything that you do to try to try to please God, to get his favor, to get salvation is an abomination to God because God said, I have not, I have almost done it or I've almost got it, but it is finished. Do not blaspheme God's sacrifice on the cross by thinking that there is something that you can do to add. The only way to receive what he has done on the cross is through through faith, by grace, in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is finished. And for those, for those of us who believe, that's great news. God's favor is on us. We don't have to do anything more to earn our salvation, nothing. We can sit secure in the salvation that he has given to us because we stand not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's available to all who believe in him. Now, the last thing I want us to see this morning is this. When Jesus said it is finished, he said, Satan, what is finished? Satan's power. Satan's power. Now, if we look at Jesus' life, really, how did he start his public ministry? First thing he did, he got tempted, and he went, what, out into the desert with Satan, and then he started casting out demons. And there has been this conflict between Satan and God from, from since the creation, since Satan fell. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, there was, he will What? Strike your heel and you will crush his head. There has been this fight between Satan and God. Satan has tried to overthrow God's program. He's the prince of the power of the air. And so we are told that when Christ died, he died what? He died to conquer Satan's sin and death. John tells us, now judgment is upon the world. Now the rule of the world will be cast out. In other words, there was this time where, where Satan was given charge over humanity because God gave it to him because of sin. And he was the one who kept power over mankind. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Luke, 1 John told us, for we know that we are of God, that the whole world lies in the power of the devil. And so he says in Matthew, 
or how can one enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house? In other words, when Christ came, he came to what? Plunder Satan's house. And in view of the cross, he said this, now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of this world, what? Be cast out. Again, he says in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, Colossians 2.15. And so when Christ came and when he said it is finished, he had done everything that was necessary to secure our salvation. And now he has now, as, and he will now die, and he will now conquer Satan. And Satan's power is now broken. And Satan, though he is still a strong adversary, and though he is one that we must not take lightly, he is a defeated foe. He has been vanquished by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. He no longer holds the key to, to, to hell, death, and Hades because they have been given to us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And us, for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have power over Satan and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and he, he says, even when we were dead in our trans transgressions, dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now notice in that verse, he says he, he placed us in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. He does not say he placed us in heaven. Notice that. And this is really a technical term for saying that when we were saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, he raised us up and he put us above the spiritual realm with him. In other words, we have power over the principalities and powers and darkness. We have power over Satan in Jesus Christ. And we are no longer under his control. We are no longer slaves of Satan. We have been taken out of darkness and put into light. We have been put into God's kingdom and so we now are no longer slaves to Satan. We now have the power to live a victorious life. Well, unfortunately for some of us, for many of us, we live as if that never happened. We live as if that never happened. And we walk around and we say, oh, Satan made me do it. And we kick our foot in the sand and we live a defeated life and we blame him. And we forget that Jesus Christ on the cross says, it is finished. Satan's power is broken. And now we can live in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can have victory over sin. And we can, we can have victory here and the now. Not only are we, do, do we have victory over death and that we will see him, we will see eternity and we will live with him forever and that we will be completely without sin in heaven. But he says, right here and now, believer, you have the power to live the victorious Christian life. And he says, you need to recognize what Jesus Christ has done for you, what he has done on the cross. He has vanquished the power of of Satan 
so that you might live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop treating him like he's, he's the powerful one. He's not. Greater is he that is in you than what? He that is in the world. Stop blaming him. Start living up to what Christ has declared, what is finished on the cross. Satan is done. He has been vanquished. Sure, he's still going about, but his doom has already been set. We are children of the king. Let us live like that. And so this morning, as we look at what Christ has finished, we are once again amazed by him because he has not, he's fulfilled all of that prophecy. He suffered so that we wouldn't have to suffer. He crushed Satan's power so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but alive to Jesus Christ. He finished the atonement. He paid the price for sin. He covered sin. And now he has reconciled us to God. He's redeemed us, bought us back out of the marketplace and made us his own. He has done all for that for us. And everything that was necessary for our redemption and the satisfaction of God's wrath and standing in our place has been done by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we can only say, praise be the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. May he be glorified and let us lift up his name for what he has done for us on the cross. We need to do nothing. He has done it all. All we do is fall down in faith before him and love him and adore him and live in the power of his resurrection.